Please remain standing for our gospel lesson and the sermon text taken from Matthew chapter 2. Again, give your ear to the gospel of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may also come and worship him. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the way that it bears witness to your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we study it together, as we consider it, that you would reveal your son, Jesus, to us and that we would be made like him. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this season, short season after Christmas in the church year, is Epiphany. Right? It's not one that, that normally gets a lot of playtime, but we have a couple weeks of Epiphany um, where we celebrate Jesus Christ being manifested to the nations. That's what epiphany means. It's a manifestation or a sudden perception of something. It's, you have an epiphany when you have one of those moments where everything sort of just clicks into place and it helps you reinterpret everything that came before. The, the texts that are normally read for epiphany are these moments where those from the nations or those uh, within Israel have this realization of who Christ is and what he's come to do. Those places in the gospel narratives where people perceive in a very real way who Jesus is, his glory, his divinity, or in this, as in this passage, that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and the Savior of the world. And in, in our passage today, just uh, as it is back then, it is today, when there is a, a realization, a perception of who Jesus actually is, there are a number of responses 
to that realization. Um, and what we're going to look at today is we're, I want to organize our time by looking through the passage at three main responses to this realization, this perception of who Jesus is. Matthew's account of the wise men coming to visit uh, the baby Jesus is one of those traditional Christmas texts, but it's, it's also probably the main epiphany text. And we commemorate it usually with our nativity scenes or perhaps singing the hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are. We might have sung that this Christmas season. Um, and yet we find when we get into the passage that many of those details that we put in our nativity scenes and our hymns are missing. If we read the passage, you'll find that there is not a single mention of a turban or a camel or even that there are three kings. Instead, what Matthew tells us beginning in chapter 2 verse 1 is this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. So if these are, are, are these the normal three kings that, that we think about? Who are these wise men? Well, they probably were not kings in and of themselves, but they are representatives of kings. By the way, most of the details that we fill in in our Christmas cards and our hymns and so forth um, are drawn from things like our Old Testament reading in Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesies of the nations coming on camels to present gifts uh, when they see the glory of God. And so that's why often there's camels. It's not a bad um, conjecture to put in there. But the wise men uh, were not necessarily kings themselves, but counselors to kings. Our word that's used there um, sometimes is translated magi, from Greek magoi, these counselors, these wise men, people educated in philosophy, religion, science. Sometimes they were even uh, priests themselves. Okay, these, these are characters that we've, that we've seen before in the scriptures. When Moses goes in to speak to Pharaoh, Pharaoh has these counselors around his throne who also try to perform the same miracles that Moses does. They're his magi, his wise men. Or Daniel, when Daniel is taken into Babylon in the exile and, and the king has dreams that he can't interpret, he calls forth his wise men. Um, and, and Daniel himself seems to become the head wise man, the head counselor in Babylon. These are the, the people that kings would call upon to give advice or counsel in a whole host of situations. So not necessarily kings, but some of our inferences about them, uh, maybe they're good. And they've, they've come on a long journey, and they explain their mission when they get to Jerusalem this way. In verse 2, they say, they came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So these are counselors who have spent their time studying the sky, and they have seen a star that has led them to undertake a journey of some several hundred miles if they're coming from Babylon or from Arabia. Um, what is it that they saw? 
that, that prompted them to do this? Well, Matthew, again, is very sparse on our details. And many of you have probably seen any number of explanations of this astronomical phenomenon. Uh, maybe that there was a supernova or various planets align in a certain way to create a, a, um, a very bright star that they also uh, followed. And, and I don't know. Many of these things might be possible. There are others who are, are more gifted in astronomy who have done a lot of research. But the fact that this star, again, appears later in our narrative and leads them to a specific house. It says it comes and it stood over the place where Jesus was. The fact that they can follow this star to an address makes me think that maybe this is not just an astronomical phenomenon. But if we look at what the star is more theologically, if we remember that in the scriptures, stars are often associated with the angels. They are the host of heaven. And this language of following the star and the star standing over the place where the child is is the same language from uh, the Exodus as the pillar of cloud and fire where the glory of the Lord, um, the children of Israel follow this and they stop whenever it stands over a place. It's a manifestation of the glory of God through an angel. I think that's what this star is. Possibly even the same angel, the host of heaven, that appear to the shepherds in Luke's gospel. Um, but at any rate, what, whatever this phenomenon is that they're following, they arrive in Jerusalem, we know from the passage, with a group large enough to be noticed, and they begin asking around for the king of the Jews. Now this story is so common uh, to you and me, we read it every Christmas or every Epiphany. But you can imagine the kind of disorientation and confusion this might cause if you get an entourage of cabinet members from these foreign countries showing up in the capital city and asking for the newborn king. Right? It's confusing. It's confusing for the wise men because they've seen the stars. They have. Uh, they've studied prophecies. They have this idea that when they get to Jerusalem, to the capital, they're going to find a party, right? They show up in the first house that they, it's like a ghost town, right? They knock on the first door. Where's the party? Where's the king of the Jews? Wow, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about, right? That's confusing for them. Didn't they see the star? Don't they know about the prophecies? Haven't they, you know, is there a party going on? And think about the person that they're asking. They haven't heard of any newborn king of the Jews. They may not even want to talk about that with Herod, as we'll get to in a moment. Around, it's confusing for them. It's very disorienting. It reminded me of a, of a joke that uh, some of my friends played on another one at our church in Raleigh. You guys will be able to fill in the details better than, than I could on this. But um, one of our friends once set up a, an account, I think it was on Craigslist, for our friend saying that he was selling a pony at some incredibly ridiculous low price and that he was willing to travel 
and throw in all of the gear associated with this pony and he'll just take it to you. And it was some rock bottom, you know, and they had pictures and everything. They spent a lot of time building this up. And, um, and we were in a, in a meeting and his, and my friend's phone rings and he picks it up and he answers it. Oh, I'm sorry, I think you have the wrong number, right? And so then he hangs up, puts on silent. And for the whole rest of the meeting, the thing is just buzzing off of the hook. When he gets when he gets done, he has like 46 messages of people. Is the pony still available? <laughs> and, you know, and so this is the kind of confusion that's going on. The wise men show up and they're expecting that there's going to be all of this news, all of this party. The, the the Messiah, the King of the Jews, has been born, and it's also confusing for everyone else. Very disorienting. Um, but the King of the Jews has been born. He has been manifested to the nations. God is wields the entire universe to make known the fact that his son has been born. And that manifestation, as we said, causes many number of reactions. The first one that we see, the first reaction to the manifestation of Christ is hostility and fear. You can see that um, in verse 3, Herod's reaction. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. It's a very strong word of his reaction to be troubled, it says. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane as he ponders the wrath of God coming to fall on him on the cross soon. He is troubled in spirit. When Herod hears that the king of the Jews has been born, he does not have joy. He is, has hostility and fear. Herod, Herod is an, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. At this, at this point in the story, this is Herod the Great. He's an, he's an old man. He actually, this Herod, will not live much longer past this narrative. All right, he, he dies in the next few years. He was appointed the king of the Jews by the Romans some 30 years earlier. And he's been ruling in Jerusalem for 30 years. In a lot of ways, Herod was a, um, a very skilled ruler. He was skilled in combat, politics. He's especially known for his building projects, building up uh, the temple, the second temple, um, any number of store cities and fortresses. So in a lot of ways, he's a, he's a very competent ruler, but he became very cruel and paranoid as he aged in life. He always was fearful for plots on his life. And so um, in his paranoia in his old age, he even has one of his wives and three of his sons executed in order to protect his reign. And that's just a few of his, his cruel decrees. Uh, the next story in Matthew's Gospel is, is Herod sending out word to slaughter all of the baby boys in Bethlehem from two and under. This is the kind of man that Herod has become. And we can realize on a human level why he's troubled, why Jesus would be perceived as a threat to him. The wise men are asking for someone who is born king of the Jews. Herod knows that he has no recent heirs born to him, but he also knows that he was not born king of the Jews. He was appointed by Rome. He was appointed by the nations uh, somewhat unwillingly to rule over 
God's people. And here, the Magi are asking where the descendant of David, the born descendant of David, not appointed by Rome, but the one that is destined to rule over the nations, they come to Herod's court and ask, where has that son been born? On a very political level, we can see why, why Herod is upset by this. But we should also read Herod, of, Herod as representative of the kind of hostility that is aroused whenever sin is exposed. John tells us that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For those who have an interest in holding on to sin personally or keeping a sinful and falling system in place corporately, the arrival of Christ is not good news. Rather, it's troubling. It arouses hostility and even fear. Christ has come to heal and forgive, to free and to restore, but that means change. It always means change in a fallen world. From Herod's reaction, we can learn that we should not be surprised by the hostility or fear that the manifestation of Christ arouses in others around us. Not many of us personally know people who, like Herod, hate God and would destroy Christ and his church if possible. More often, we're more likely to encounter scoffing or indifference or rudeness, some smaller levels of persecution. Yet, we should expect personally and as a church to endure some level of hostility when the Lord is working in us and through us. When the Lord is manifesting himself in your life, you can expect that not everyone uh, will cheer and applaud that. That there will be some that this will arouse hostility. I know that some of you, even this year, have told me different stories about work where you're saying, man, I'm just, I'm there. I'm working uh, unto the Lord and not as unto men. I'm trying my best. I'm doing my hardest. I'm I want to communicate Christ to my coworkers, and I'm very pleasant to this guy. And for some reason, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, that will happen. I know some of you are experiencing that even now. When Christ is manifest, for those who are interested in personally holding on to sin, um, you will, Christ will arouse hostility in that instance. We also should be aware, too, though, that we all have remnants of the many Herod in us. Every time that we feel threatened by the change that Christ brings in our lives, the hostility, the fear, that reaction to Christ can come out in us as well. Is there a place in your life that the, the light of Christ has shown and you find yourself loving the darkness more than the light. That you, I, I don't want to confess that. I don't want to bring that forward. I don't want this to change because it's comfortable for me right now. If so, John gives us great comfort when he says that if we walk in the light, 
as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. On this very earthly level, Herod is, is worried about the king of the Jews. That language actually only shows up one other place in, in Matthew's gospel. Do you know where it is? It's the inscription over the cross. Jesus is the king of the Jews, and he is coming to take a throne, but he will be installed not with courtiers, but with nails. If Herod perceived the true threat that Jesus was, that it was not just a, not just a political upheaval that was possible, but an entire spiritual, world-changing mission that Jesus came to do, he would either have even greater hostility than he did, or he would realize that salvation has come. It's the same for us in our personal lives as well. So in verse 4, Herod calls the religious leaders, and he says, and when he, it says, When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Um, they answer him correctly, citing Micah 5.2. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The scribes and the religious uh, leaders, the priests, give their answer. And then we don't hear anything else about them for the whole rest of the narrative. They don't show up again until later. They represent the second response to Christ, which is indifference. They're indifferent. And really, their indifference is, is stunning. These are the ones who should most expect the Messiah to be born. They have so much more scriptural knowledge, so much more religious access than these wise men who have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles. And then they hear reports when they're called in by Herod that fit all of these Old Testament prophecies, right? We might think of Numbers 24 that says, a star will rise out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. Or our Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter 60, nations will come to your light. The wise men, here are these people from all of the nations coming to this light, following a star that, uh, that shows that a king has been born. They have all the data that they need to say, this, this is the Messiah. And yet, as Matthew implies, they do absolutely nothing. The wise men have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles, and they cannot be bothered to travel the five or six miles from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem, even to investigate. They give the king the answer, and they go home. These verses are sobering because they teach us that you can have a head brimful of Scripture without an ounce of grace in your heart. You can have a head brimful of Scripture and not an ounce of grace in your heart. They served Herod's purposes readily enough, but they would not rise to serve the Lord. The distance that they needed to travel to verify these reports that they're hearing, um, Google Maps tells me, is walking from here out to the Walmart across, uh, across the road here and back. 
if you could make the walk from here to Walmart and back, they could have gone and checked out all of these reports that they were hearing, and they didn't even do that. Why? Why wouldn't they go? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. But we can be sure that whatever other rationalizations they told themselves, we can be sure that they believed they didn't need him. They believed they did not need to go and seek him out. Friends, it is the same today, sadly. There are those, especially in the church, who know about Christ propositionally, but do not know Christ personally. There are those who have grown up with Scripture knowledge, and when you do, you are always tempted to be content with Scripture knowledge. But Jesus would tell the scribes and the Pharisees later, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. They are not willing to make the journey that they may have life. Friends, this is a possible, it's possible for all of us to gain knowledge of Christ in our head that we don't act upon. Whenever we read the scriptures, when we hear sermons, when we pray, that God is revealing something of Christ to us and, and to ourselves about how we uh, should live, and we don't act upon that. When we do, we are displaying the same indifference that the scribes and the priests did to the manifestation of Christ. Let's be aware of not ignoring God's claims on our lives through his word and through the ministry of the spirit to us. But you don't have to grow up in the church to be this way. You, you, may, be, um, you may be investigating the claims of Christ. You may just be looking into this Christianity thing and you are in a precarious place if you are satisfied with getting your little questions here and there answered. The claims that Jesus makes about himself, that he is God come in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, are not things that can be played with. The scribes and the Pharisees teach us that indifference is a real problem for us and one, whether we have grown up in the church or not, that we ought to avoid. So Herod calls the wise men in, in verse 7, says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. All right, we know Herod it does not intend to worship Jesus, but to kill Jesus. He's confident that he's deceived the wise men, so he sends them on. And we read in verse 9, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Whatever we know or don't know about the wise men, we do know that they represent those whose hearts are tender and seeking and believing. For them, the birth of Christ is good news because they know that Christ has come to take away sins and rule in righteousness over all the nations. Their response, in other words, is worship. Their response is worship. Look at verse 11. 
When they come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When we perceive what God has, that God has given himself and all that he is to us in Christ, then we will respond like the wise men in worship by offering him all of ourselves and all that we have also. This passage, I brought it up earlier, again, by the way, is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60, our Old Testament reading. Isaiah said that after the return from the exile, the glory of God would rise on the new temple and the nations would come to its light and offer gifts and offer worship. In fact, he even mentions gold and incense specifically. Actually, every time Israel builds a temple, I don't know if you've noticed this, every time Israel builds a temple, it's the nations who supply the materials and often the workmen, right? Think about um, as Israel comes out of Egypt and they build the tabernacle, where do they get the gold and the materials for the tabernacle? From Egypt. Right. When Solomon builds the temple later, where does he get the materials? From the king of Tyre, who also sends workmen to aid in the construction. A lot of these same things, incense, gold, timber, flocks. We might think of the post-exilic temple, the one that's standing when Jesus is born. When the king, um, king Cyrus sends back the people, he finances the trip, and he gives all of the vessels that were taken in captivity, and he sends them back to build the temple. This is a pattern. Every time Israel builds a temple, it's the nations who are brought in to give, uh, to give the materials. And every time the temple is built, the glory of God settles down upon it such that the people can't enter it and such that it draws others to come and worship them. Except one time. In the post-exilic temple, when Cyrus sends back all the captives and they rebuild the temple, the, the, the old men weep because it does not have the glory of Solomon's temple, even though it's mixed with rejoicing. But that is the only time where the glory of God does not settle on the temple. In fact, this is the temple that Herod is so famous for reconstructing and beautifying and building. The glory of God never fills that temple, but it does rest on a baby boy in a manger just five miles away. You see, Matthew is showing us that God's glory is resting on Jesus Christ and presents him as the true temple, the new temple. Jesus is the place of God's presence where fellowship with him can be enjoyed. Jesus is the place where God's glory resides. Jesus is the place where true atoning sacrifice that makes us right with God is offered. Matthew is giving us an epiphany of who this baby boy really is. That star in the east, the glory of God, that led the wise men to the temple and settled over Jesus, made them realize that Jesus is the place where you can have fellowship with God. 
Jesus took our sins upon himself and died as the atoning sacrifice for us. This is God's design from the very beginning, that he should have a place where he can come and fellowship with his people. Jesus Christ now is that place. When you perceive who Christ is and what God has done for you in Christ, then you will also respond in worship just like the Magi did. Is that true of you today? Have you perceived the grace of God in Christ for you? Not propositionally, personally. God's glory has come in his Son to forgive and to redeem you. He has come to be that righteous king from Psalm 72 that we read, who will rule over all the nations of men in peace and in righteousness. Do you know him personally? Have you accepted his forgiveness? Are you willing to give joyfully and gladfully and gladly all that you have in response to him? We can do this in our vocations, in our lives. We may offer him um, our work. We may offer him our schoolwork. We can offer him our homemaking. We can offer him our work in the church. Whether we evangelize or lead, pray, teach, give, serve, we should be like the wise men, opening up our gifts and our treasure and giving them to Christ um, in sacrifice and in joy to the God who loved us and gave of his own son for us. When we perceive that, we will. Christ has been manifested to the nations. He has come. He is the place of God's presence for you. Friends, perceive in him the goodness and the forgiveness of God, worship and adore him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and that he has come, and that he is the king of kings and the righteous ruler that we look to. Lord, we pray that you would give us a revelation of him so that we would open ourselves up to you in worship and in gratitude, and then in doing that, he would continually be made known to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.